Hey, welcome. Um, if you're watching from your couch, uh, in your living room, in your kitchen, uh, hopefully you're not driving and watching, don't do that. We've actually heard that there are people who have tuned in and checked us out from other countries. So we are extending our love to you from, what, from Minnesota to whatever country you're in. We're glad that you're here. Um, we are still in our stay-at-home order, although things are going to be changing tomorrow, according to our governor. Um, and some of you are beginning to get a little frazzled. There's a little fraying at the edges going on after, I think it's been something like 49, 50 days of stay-at-home. Um, some of you introverts are finally tired of being alone and you want to be around some people. Uh, some of you have played so many board games that you finally dug to the back of the closet and you got Monopoly back out. And you remember what happened last time you played Monopoly. Pieces went everywhere, arguments, terrible things, but you're so bored, you're finally playing Monopoly again. Um, some of you are making, you know, questionable quarantine decisions, like the haircuts that you've been giving yourselves. You know, I know you're desperate, but hold off. Our family is making some questionable decisions. We actually got a pet at the beginning of quarantine, so when you're able to come back over, we'll introduce you to Charlie. But I wanted you to think about the fact that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness after his baptism, the Gospels tell us, and he came out stronger, praying and fasting. And I think that we have the opportunity to utilize this time well and to come out stronger the other side for it. So you've got this. I know we miss you. I know you want to be together. I know you want to go into an Applebee's and get free refills or whatever it is that you've been missing, but you've got this and you can come out the other side stronger for it. All right, we are in our seventh letter to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So this is Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and we've made it through all seven letters in just five weeks. That's how efficient we are. Um, so today is letter number seven. Now, remember, these are real churches. You can buy a plane ticket, fly to Turkey, and you can scope out these archaeological digs that are excavating these ancient towns. In some cases, they don't exist anymore. In some cases, they're surrounded by modern urban cities. You could probably also just get on Google Earth and check it out. That'd probably be a little bit better. But more importantly, these are real letters from Jesus. Now, I get a little nervous during job reviews, you know, when you feel like you're being evaluated, but imagine Jesus is doing the evaluation. I mean, imagine you're trying to understand what he wants from you and what he cares about, and that's what we're seeing in these letters. So let's just jump right in. Chapter 3, verse 14. Ephesians, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is establishing his credentials. They did this at the beginning of their letters. He's saying, I'm the one who's in charge. I'm faithful. I'm the amen. Now, we've told you every week that the language of the book of Revelation is the language of the Old Testament. So, for example, uh, the amen is a reference back to Isaiah 65, 16. Now, if you happen to turn there, which I think you should, uh, it actually says God of truth, but the literal translation is God of amen. Now, these seven letters that we're reading are pretty straightforward, but if you've been doing a little reading beyond chapter 3, the book of Revelation gets pretty strange pretty quickly. And I know, I've been there, and I likely you have too, people have always been tempted to read this book with current events as a fixed point. 
So, for example, if you're reading a little ahead and you get to Revelation 15, it talks about um, a plague. Well, you might be thinking, hey, COVID-19 is kind of like a plague. So you stick a flag into the ground right there at Revelation chapter 15, and you say, this must be 2020. And then if the coronavirus is a plague, then it's not very far. You get into things like the CDC is the beast. All right, right, just cool your jets. I want to give you just a quick two-second guide to reading the book of Revelation. First of all, yes, this book is about the future. If you read chapter 1, verse 19, John is talking about things that have happened and things that are happening and things that will happen. But remember, it was written 19 centuries ago. So there's a lot of future to cover in the last two millennia. Future to them, history to us. And we think it's about our future. There are a lot of YouTube videos that have complex charts and graphs and math, and it all makes sense if you stand on your head and squint your eyes and you can figure out how somehow some world leader is the Antichrist. I know. So first of all, the book is about the future, their future. Secondly, I I think we do need to know or have a biblical view of the coronavirus. So what should should Christians should be doing? And so sometimes we want to look at a book like the book of Revelation to figure that out. Instead, if you're interested in what should, should Christians think about this current situation, may I suggest reading Matthew 5 through 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Spoiler alert. What Christians should be doing now is what Christians should be doing all the time. Loving their enemies, taking care of or praying for people that persecute. All the things that Christians should always be doing. I know that statement won't get as many YouTube views as talking about the Antichrist and modern events, but it is biblical. All right, so if you are familiar with these letters, then this next verse that I'm going to read is the line that kind of comes to mind when you think about the letters in the book of Revelation. Verse 15, he says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, it is worth thinking about this just for a second. Jesus is actually saying that this church made him sick. Translations kind of clean up the language because the word he uses isn't a sophisticated medical term. Starts with P, ends with uke. It's not a word you want your kids using in polite company around their grandparents. For a few years, I worked the overnight shift at uh, a couple different 24-hour restaurants as a server. Now, I probably don't need to say much more about what it's like at 3 a.m. at a Denny's, but I will. Um, nobody, first of all, nobody's fighting for these shifts. They're, they're not shifts that anybody wants. They're, have, they're begging people to fill these shifts because it's overnight. But secondly, it's because there's this rush around 2 or 3 a.m. whenever the bars close down and you get this flood of hungry, drunk people. And as soon as they get a little food in their stomachs, guess what happens in the booth at the Denny's that the servers have to clean up at 4 a.m.? It's not fun. Jesus uses disturbing language because he wants this church to be disturbed. This is an intervention. The the time for polite pleasantries is way past. So what is lukewarmness? If we're going to talk about this, what are we talking about? Now, at first glance, and this is certainly how it's explained to me, it sounds like Jesus is saying something like, well, I wish you were either on fire for Jesus or cold for Satan or something like that. Fish or cut bait to be either all in or all out. 
Now, I heard a lot of sermons, and that really preaches, and it gets people wound up and riled up, but scholars agree that's probably not what was going on. Now, of course, this is 2,000 years in our history, so we have to do some speculating, but I think this is worth noting. Laodicea was connected to two other cities. It was in this tri-city area, um, and in this area, there was Colossae, and there was Heropolis. Now, Colossae was kind of up at a mountain, and they had this wonderful mountain stream flowing through town, and Heropolis was built on hot springs. I mean, you can Google all this stuff if you want to learn about it on your own. I know everybody wants to learn about ancient geography, but city planners built Laodicea at the corner of these crossroads, so there was a lot of commerce and trade, but it wasn't really near an adequate water source. So, some brilliant engineers figured out how to pipe in water from the hot springs at Heropolis. There's a lot of archaeological evidence. So I've got these pictures of these pipes. I mean, they're actual pipes that they brought the water into Laodicea. Now, the problem is, is that by the time it actually flowed through those pipes to the town, it wasn't hot like it was originally in the hot springs, but it also wasn't cold like Colossae's mountain water. I don't know how many of you remember drinking out of the hose when you were a kid. You're too busy playing and having fun to go inside and get a glass of, uh, of water like a civilized human, so you turn on the hose. Now, you remember the first few seconds was that kind of warmish, rubber-tasting water, which you spit out. That's the taste of childhood, I'm sure. But that's exactly what Jesus is describing in this letter. Now, notice, this is important. Notice Jesus connects their deeds to, with the adjective lukewarm. They're doing something, it's just not useful. It's not like a cup of hot coffee on a cold day, or it's not like a cup of iced tea on a warm day. They're doing something, it's just not useful somethings. It's kind of like the guy who shows up to help with a move, but when it's time to carry the couch, he rushes to grab the cushions. Don't worry guys, I got these. Not useful. Or it's like the kid in a group science project class uh, or a group class or a group project in a science class and he kind of phones his part in and you have to redo everything anyway, but he gets to share the grade. Not helpful. He's not carrying the load. He's not adding to, the, to what's going on. Uh, James chapter 2 verse 16 talks about a guy uh, whose neighbor comes to him and asks him for food and instead of inviting this guy in for dinner, he gives him a blessing. He says, be warmed and feel, filled, although while he's hiding a sandwich behind his back, you know, you can't eat a blessing for dinner. You have food. You should answer the prayer that you're praying. You're not, you're doing something. It's just not useful. And I think this is important to consider. I think lukewarmness may be any time our discipleship is more about making ourselves feel good while kind of just putting in the minimum amount without actually doing the hard work of following Jesus. Now, what I'm about to say is going to sound controversial, but it should not, so I need you to take off your political filters just for a minute. It's easier to be anti-homeless than it is to be pro-volunteer at a homeless shelter. It's easier to be anti-abortion than it is to be pro-single pregnant mother. It's easier to be anti-welfare than it is to be pro-dropping off groceries at needy people's homes. We can easily be against those things without also being for the things that they're intended to take care of. 
Now, I don't want anybody to be confused about what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that discipleship is not about meeting the minimum requirements. It's about doing the hard work and the sacrifice of following Jesus. And the sobering reality is that, spiritually speaking, many of us are rushing to grab the couch cushions so we don't have to carry the couch. I know you probably heard the old statistic, uh, 20% of people do 80% of the work, and that's true in so many arenas, and it's certainly true in the church as well. That we, we want the credit, but we don't want to actually have to do anything that's difficult or hard. And what we're doing is easy, and it's minimal, and we don't feel bad, but it's not helpful. Because doing the hard work of real discipleship is hard work. Now look what he says in verse 17. The first part of verse 17, he says, you say, I am rich and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that they were actually saying those words, but that's what they were projecting. You, I am rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need anything. Now, am I wrong or in this one verse, does it feel like Jesus sums up the American dream? Like we can literally, with our phones, order whatever we want and have it delivered to our doorstep in hours you, right now, you don't even have to bother to go through a drive through which is the more convenient option than going inside. You can pay someone else to go through the drive through for you and bring the food to your doorstep. It's wild. Does anybody remember being broke in college? Some of you are thinking, broke in college, I'm broke right now. Well, all right, different story for a different time. But I think being broke in college was very different. Um, a lot of us, <laughs> we found a futon on the side of the road, sitting in the rain, smelling like a wet dog, and you thought, hey, new living room furniture. That's, uh, that's broken college. I remember putting 63 cents in my gas tank. Now, I'm not so old that 63 cents bought a lot of gas, <laughs> but I wanted to drive across town, and 63 cents was all the change I could find on the floorboards of the car. Incidentally, 63 cents was also my life savings, which I had been saving on the floorboards of my car. And this is a little embarrassing to admit, but I'm going to tell you because we're friends. My mattress for years was a used mattress. Now, I don't mean like from a friend that I know that took good care of that mattress. I mean driving down the road, curb mattress. We don't know its history. We don't know what it's infested with. It's free, and that's all that matters. That's, uh, that's college broke. The futon, cable spool, table, ramen noodles broke. And Jesus is saying, you've graduated from mystery mattresses and frozen waffles, but it's made you think that you don't need anything. And what he's saying is, is you've just traded one type of problem for a different and more dangerous one. And this is what he says in the second half of verse 17. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, my point isn't that being broke is more spiritual. But when you are broke, it's harder to delude yourself into thinking that you have it all together and you don't need anything. Jesus did say in the Gospels that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I think what he was saying is that it's easy for people with means to think that they don't need God. Last year sometime, um, Liam was seven, maybe it was, a, maybe it was early, maybe he was six. Uh, he came into the living room uh, where Kareen and I were sitting and he says, Dad, can I get a propel? Well, what, what, a what now? He goes, a propel, it's a new, he said these words, it's a new vitamin infused water with electrolytes. 
And I'm like, first of all, where did you learn the word infused? And do you have any clue what an electrolyte is? Because I don't. Where are you hearing these phrases? And he's, Dad, Propel is healthy. It has vitamins and antioxidants. I'm like, who are you? What are you talking about? Now, what had happened is he had been off with the laptop watching YouTube, and I think we thought we was watching like an educational kids show, uh, but evidently the kids show was brought to you by Propel, and he had basically memorized this commercial. YouTube was creating this, this little tiny consumer. Now, the truth is we are all inundated by this all the time. It is the societal air that we breathe, all this materialism and consumerism. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, Patrick, you're just being paranoid. And, and by the way, I mean, commercials don't affect me. I'm not influenced by such silly things. Well, let me give you a couple quotes that I think might change your mind. Now, these are from a documentary called The Century of Self, and it's about this very topic, about consumerism and what uh, companies are trying to get us to do in terms of buying. Now, this quote is from the 1950s. Uh, this is a gentleman by the name of Paul Mazur, and he was a partner at Lehman Brothers. You remember them. And this, he was talking to a bunch of ad execs about how to shift the economy after World War II. And this is what he said. Listen, this is crazy. We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things even before the old has entirely been consumed. Hello, iPhone owners. He goes, we must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Well, I got to say, I think he's been pretty successful. Uh, another gentleman by the name of Victor Lebeau said this, again, speaking to ad execs. He goes, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption a way of life, that we convert the buy and buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction in consumption. Spiritual satisfaction. I would say mission accomplished. I want to give you a couple quotes from Jesus who had something to say about wealth. Mark chapter 4, verse 19, he was talking about this parable of the sower and the sower spreading the word. And he says, still others hear the word, verse 19, but the worries of this life and, listen, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The word of God undermined by materialism and consumerism. Jesus also said in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. But most of us just have to open our garages where we can't park our cars or go to our storage units and see that we have way too much. It's kind of like when you go to Target and you go to the checkout line and the clerk says something like, hey, did you find everything you needed? And you say, I actually didn't need any of the things that I found. I think Jesus is trying to help people see reality, to, to show them that their stuff, their materialism, has created an illusion. They feel like, I've got everything that I need. I can order it, and it'll be on my doorstep within a couple hours, but you're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Let me give you an example that those of us that are over the age of about 25, 30 will, will know, will remember. A lot of you know and vividly remember September 11th, 2001. 
In the weeks after uh, that event, there was this surge in church attendance and involvement and prayer because people had seen the illusion of comfort and safety. It had been completely removed for a few weeks. They could see reality, and then they realized we need Jesus, and so churches were filled with people. But then what happened once things settled back down? Right back to the status quo. We have an enemy that says revival, repentance. Oh, hey, why don't you fill that void with something shiny and nice? And we get distracted by the next new thing, and it undermines the work of God in our lives. I know some of you may feel like, well, Patrick, you're making too big of a deal of this. I've had to rethink my relationship with stuff and and my family's relationship with stuff, my son's relationship with stuff, and the way that we consume uh, content and, and advertisements because we are so material, and that creates this illusion in us that we don't need Jesus. It really does. And if you don't think it does, maybe it's because you bought into that illusion. I wonder if this is true for some of us. Maybe the last two months have made you realize a few things about your life. Maybe some of you have had this thought, you know, I I was too busy. I I didn't see my family enough. I, I can get by with far less income than I thought. Now, here's what's important to note. Those things were always true. You just couldn't see them. It hurts, but there is a blessing in having our illusions shattered. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do in this letter. He's trying to shatter their illusions of self-sufficiency. Because here's my big worry. I, I, I wonder what is going to happen when our stay-at-home order, o- orders or our safer-at-home orders are lifted, when it's easy to kind of slide back into that illusion and just refill our lives with all the, 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 the peripheral stuff that was there before. Are we just going to go back to that overscheduled, consumer-oriented, happy-in-my-ignorance lifestyle? Is that what our church is going to do? And I pray that that's not the case. Well, this is how he wraps up in verse 18. He says, I counsel you. He's using their consumer language to talk about spiritual things. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He employs these terms of materialism and there is some interesting historical and archaeological connections here about you know what what uh, Laodicea was known for and what they had and maybe he's making point making some connections that we don't see as well. But he's saying what he's always said. He's saying store up your treasure in heaven. The things that most matter aren't things that you can buy. So, just real quick, recap what he said so far. He said, you make me sick, ouch. You are blind and naked and poor, also ouch. And then look what he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. He's not, he's not saying these things because he detests us. He's saying these things because he loves us. And then he says, be earnest and repent. Verse 20, here I am, I stand at the door, and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Notice what he says there in verse 20. Listen, I actually don't care if you remember a single word I said during, I've said during this sermon series. I don't care if you remember any of the awesome illustrations or historical references. And that's saying a lot from a guy who really loves being validated. But what I do care about is that this may be a point in your life that is marked by personal revival. 
Notice what Jesus says. He's like, I'm standing at the door of your house. We don't have to wait till the church can get back together to be in person to have revival. We don't have to wait till the invitation at the end of a sermon. We don't have to wait till disciple groups can once again be in someone's living room. Jesus is saying, I'm standing at the door of your house. You can have revival right there at your house, in your living room, in your kitchen, in, uh, over, uh, in, in, uh, over doing dishes, over uh, fixing the car in the garage, over, over folding laundry. You can have personal revival right there at your home. It can happen while you're out for a run. It can happen while you spend a, a minute getting the kids ready for bed, knowing that Jesus cares deeply about you and the path that you're on is not leading you closer to him. And he wants to shake us out of that illusion. Jesus is knocking. We have to wake up and repent. All right, well, that is the Revival Series. I want you to tune in next week. We're starting a brand new sermon series called Trust Issues. And it's the concept of trust is foundational to our relationship with God from the very beginning, uh, pages of scripture to the very end. And I'm not sure that we as disciples have a good, clear sense of what trust is and whether or not our lives are actually built around trust in our relationship with God. So how does, how does trust work? Can we trust God? What do we do with uncertainty? And lots more. Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll wrap up for today. Father in heaven, we're grateful for these letters that you wrote. Lord, they are, they are harsh to our ears, but we know that they're true, and we know that you have challenges uh, for us. God, we know that as modern American Christians, there's so many illusions that we bought into that you want to shake us out of, but we're so caught up in the next shiny, bright thing that we want to buy. God, I just pray that you would rip those illusions away, as painful as that is, that you would take those from us, that we could be people who, who truly deeply follow you, that we see reality the way that you see it, that we are no longer blind uh, by the things that are around us, that, that our enemy dangles in front of our face. God, we pray that we could be people who are earnest and repent. We thank you for that opportunity, and I pray that we would respond to your knocking. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll see you next week.